I will highly, highly recommend and affirm to you uh, the ministry of Assure. Um, one of my students is the doc daughter of the director. Um, lovely, lovely family, wonderful woman, Tony Clark. And one of my dearest friends has worked for Assure for many, many, many years. Uh, and I have a tremendous respect for her and for the ministry that they do. It's amazing um, how many lives they have saved. So, uh, and exciting. Uh, and they are passionate. We have a number of, uh, do we have any volunteers here? We have a number of people from Brookside that volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Right. I forgot that. Another one of my dearest friends right there. Uh, just really, truly a wonderful ministry. Uh, and women who are passionate about uh, helping women and uh, babies. So, uh, so good morning. I guess are we recording yet? Yeah. We can. Okay, great. We're recording. Uh, do you have any questions before we begin today? Yes. That's okay. Right, so what's the difference between the Antichrist and Antichrist? And today we're going to talk about then what is the spirit of the Antichrist. And we'll start out talking about that pretty quickly. Uh, the Bible teaches that uh, toward the end of time, the end of time of this earth, there will be a, a political leader figure who will be the Antichrist, who uh, will control um, the world essentially. Uh, and he will be at some point indwelled with Satan. Uh, and uh, that is the Antichrist, capital A. But an Antichrist, any, anyone who is in rebellion, open rebellion to God, uh, is an Antichrist, is opposed to Christ. So literally it just means to be opposed to Christ. So there is the Antichrist, and John's going to say, as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming and his spirit is now already in the world. So uh, we'll talk about the difference between those two, but generally anyone who is openly in rebellion, opposed to Christ, opposed to God, is an antichrist. Does that uh, answer so your question? He was talking about the secessionists as antichrists. As, those, as, as among those who are opposed to and in open rebellion to God because of their opposition to Jesus. Okay, great. Any other questions? Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for this day, for your word, for your truth. Um, as we walk through um, these passages, these verses today, Father, I just pray that you would give us two things, tell us two things quickly. First of all, how great and mighty and awesome you are. And Father, secondly, how deep is the love that you have for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're going to begin here with 1 John 4, 1 through 6. And it's, it's something of a digression uh, in, oh, there's babies. Aren't they cute? <laughs> it's um, something of a digression in John's thought processes. He had been talking about love uh, quite a bit, 
in, the, in the passages that we read last week, and he's going to come back to that. So he kind of takes this sort of parenthesis, this time out. Um, he had said, this is the message you have heard from the beginning, love one another, and he's going to come back to that. But at the very end of chapter 3, the last thing that he says is about the Holy Spirit. And so that kind of triggers this, um, this six, these six verses on the Holy Spirit where he says, and this is the command to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. And so we, as believers, each have the Holy Spirit, in, the, in a sense, uh, the anointing uh, that he called earlier in First John, the anointing of the Spirit. And that's how we know, that's one way we know that God lives in us. God has given us his Spirit. However, there are others who claim to be spiritually enlightened or anointed. And at that, by that, he means the secessionists also claimed to have the spirit of God. Well, both things can't be true at the same time because, as John has pointed out, their teaching is very different. So then how do we discern between truth and falsehood? How do we discern whose teaching is actually spirit-inspired and whose is not? And that is the topic to which John will turn now. Um, now, he, he uh, makes an assumption in these first six verses that there are two spirits that are active in the world. The first being the Spirit of God, who is living inside of us as, as believers. He is living inside of us. And God's Spirit always, always, always glorifies Jesus. And then the second spirit is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which is welcomed by the world and sabotages the truth about Jesus. Now, this isn't a dualistic thing. These are not two essentially equal opposite spirits. The Holy Spirit is capitalized. The, the spirit of the Antichrist is not. They are not sort of equal opposites. Um, the Holy Spirit is God's spirit present and active in our world and in our lives. And as I just said, living inside of believers. The spirit of Antichrist, and I, and I had trouble trying to decide how to explain this, but I believe it is more the attitudes and the ideas of the world that come from Satan. Those attitudes and ideas that are opposed to Christ. It is not, the, when, when John uses the term spirit of the Antichrist, he does not mean a, a, an active indwelling spirit in the same sense as the Holy Spirit um, is. And as you'll find out, uh, greater is he that is in us, greater is the Holy Spirit than uh, the world, than, than he that is in the world, than Satan. Um, so we'll begin with verse 1 here about false prophets. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So he begins by saying, test the spirits. Don't believe everything you hear. Test the spirits to see if they're from God or not. And in a bit, he's going to tell us what 
at least two of those tests are. Now, what does it mean then to test the spirit? Well, it, it, or test the spirits. In one sense, it may just be, and maybe you've experienced this, I've experienced this before, sort of a spiritual apprehension, uh, sort of a feeling that that, that just isn't quite right. I, I can't quite put my finger on it. I can't quote the exact verse that that's opposing, but, but something inside me doesn't sit right with that. And I believe that's the Holy Spirit inside of us going, whoa, time out. You better check that out because I'm not sure that's true. And, and I, think, I think he may be saying that, but I think to test the spirits means something more than that. Because I believe that, that to, to test the spirits is to evaluate objectively what is being said against the biblical standard of truth. Now, bless you, today we have the Bible to help us. We have that written biblical standard, uh, and that underscores the importance of understanding and knowing God's word. Because not only can you not live what you don't know, you can't know what you don't know. Uh, and if you don't know, you are much more susceptible to being deceived. Uh, and so we have that biblical standard and we should treasure that, particularly in this country where we've got more Bibles than we know what to do with. There's a church that we support in Zambia that has hundreds of members and seven Bibles and they're thrilled because they used to have one. So uh, we need to, to take uh, seriously and, and appreciate that John and his church did not have the New Testament as we understand it. Um, there was no New Testament canon. Now, that word canon with a C is a word that we use um, for the Bible. To, to be canonized, to have the Bible, the biblical canon means that these, these letters, these writings have met the standard to be scripture. And that word canon comes from the Greek word canon with a K, and it meant a measure, a standard, a plumb line. Does it line up with what we know to be true? So while it is true that John and his followers and, his, and, and people of that time did not have the canon C of the New Testament that we had to have today, it does not mean that they didn't have a canon K a standard, a measure by which to determine what is true. Because they did. They had the Old Testament, which speaks a lot about Jesus, but they also had oral and written teaching considered to be, at the time, authoritative. Writings of Paul, writings of John, writings of Peter, the Gospels, um, both orally and in written form, that were considered to be authoritative and eventually became our New Testament canon. And so he says, test the spirits with what we know to be true. And then he says, because there are a lot of false prophets out there. Can I go forward? Yeah. There are a lot of false prophets out there that are teaching what is not true. Now, what is a prophet? Literally, a prophet is a messenger of God. And there were Old Testament prophets that gave direct messages from God. That's why you see in the Old Testament where the prophets are speaking and they say, this is what the Lord says. Or God will say to them, this is what you are to tell my people. And they were prophets. Um, not all who claim to be messengers of God are actually messengers of God. Some are false prophets. 
And John would put the secessionists in that group. They claimed to have new revelation about Jesus and the Spirit. But uh, uh, in reality, they were false prophets. They were not teaching the truth. Now, are there prophets today uh, in the church? Well, before I tell you what I think, (laughs) let me tell you that there would be some people who would not agree with me on this. But I would say that because the gift of prophecy, and and, and Paul says in the church there are first of all prophets, I would say that there are prophets, that there is such a thing as prophecy in the church today. Not in the same sense as the Old Testament prophets. They're not giving new revelation. I don't believe there is any such thing as new revelation. God has revealed through his son, through his word, all that is necessary for us to know. Uh, But rather, they are applying God's truth, God's word, directly to a person's life. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, there are first of all uh, prophets and then pastors and then teachers. So this is different than teaching. Teaching is taking God's word, God's truth, and applying it uh, generally and in in gleaning uh, truths from it generally. That's what I do, what I'm doing right now. Prophecy is speaking God's truth directly to a specific situation and usually, oftentimes, to a specific person. I'm going to give you two examples. Actually, I'm serious about both of these. The first one's a little bit funny, uh, but it's true. Uh, My sister has a dear friend named Kelly who... um, was in training with her in Campus Crusade. They trained together in in Denver. When Kelly got her assignment to Lincoln, which is where Missy had gone to school, where she had been in crew there and had met her husband, who was on staff uh, at Lincoln, when, when she found out that Kelly was going to Lincoln, these were the last words that she said to Kelly as as she was leaning into the car window. She said, Ned Pauly, meet him, date him, marry him. And her family has ever since called her the prophet (laughs) because she met him, she dated him, and she's still married to him 20 years later. By the way, he used to be the youth pastor here, so some of you may know Ned Pauly, wonderful, wonderful guy. So that's prophecy. I mean, honestly, that was, Missy took what she knew about Kelly, what she knew about Ned, what she knew about the truth of God's word, and spoke something directly into Kelly's life. I have a, my best friend, and I've told this story before, so I'll share the really Reader's Digest story, but I had been here at Brookside for a number of years, and I had never actually told anyone that I taught uh, for a number of years. Now, these ladies sitting here all already knew that uh, from my former church, but I had never told anyone, and I really wasn't ready to tell anyone until we went to... uh, Um, with my college roommates, went to Florida to spend some time on the beach celebrating our collective 40th birthdays. Uh, And we're sitting on the beach, and my best friend, who I've told you about before, who (laughs) says I led her to Christ, looks at me and says, Amy, what's your gift? And I said, it's teaching. And she said, are you using it? And I said, leave me alone. (laughs) And by the end of that conversation, she looked me in the eye, and she said, Amy, it's time for you to get out of the boat when you get home. You're going into your director of women's ministries and you're telling her, I don't know what you're supposed to do with this. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this, but I teach. That's prophecy. 
She took what she knew to be true about me and my gifts and what she knew to be true about Timothy, fan into a flame, the gift that God has given you. Essentially, what Paul said to Timothy, Chris said to me, Amy, fan into a flame, the gift God has given you. Am I grateful that she spoke that prophecy into my life? Absolutely. Absolutely. 13 years later, I'm here. Uh, And I'm teaching God's word, and I love doing it. That's prophecy. So yeah, I think there are prophets today. Um, and, And I would say there are also false prophets today. People who are claiming to speak the words of God, but they are not speaking for God. Um, so John's point here is that we need to be able to tell the difference between those who are preaching truth and those who are preaching falsehood, and he's going to give us two tests. Beginning in verses 2 and 3, he gives us the first test. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even and now even now is already in the world. So here's the first test. What is being said about Jesus? And he specifically says that Jesus has come in the flesh. We'll talk about what that means in a second. But he also says that any spirit that doesn't acknowledge uh, Christ, that does not acknowledge Jesus, is not from God. And so I think he means more than just doesn't acknowledge has come in the flesh. Here are three things that we know about Jesus based on 1 John, and I think this is what he means when he says this is what it means to acknowledge Jesus. Are these the only three important truths about Jesus? No. But these are three very important truths about Jesus. The first is that he is the divine word of God. The second is, and this is what he means about Jesus coming in the flesh, is that Jesus is fully God and fully present, or fully, excuse me, fully human. That is in the present tense, and that is important because he is still fully God. He has come in the flesh. He is fully God and fully human. The incarnation, the truth of the incarnation, which we've seen over and over again in 1 John. And then thirdly, Jesus is the sole source of eternal life. And he's going to talk about that in just a minute. The Spirit of God always, always, always glorifies Jesus. The Spirit is a witness to the truth about Jesus. And any teaching about Jesus that does not fit with God-breathed, spirit-inspired scripture is not true. It is false. But this is more than just a creed. There's nothing wrong with creeds. I think it is good for us to know I believe in God the Father, maker in heaven of, of heaven and earth, and his, and his only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I think it's important for us to recite those and to know those. But this must be more than a creed in our lives. This is to be more than just head knowledge, more than something that we agree to with our heads. We are to live it with our lives. It is to be believed in what we do. Because Jesus is Lord, not only of the world, but of our lives. 
And then he mentions Antichrist again, as, as we just said, that, that Antichrist is coming, as you have heard, is coming. That would be the Antichrist. But even now, even before he has come, his spirit, that attitude of rebellion, those ideas that are opposed to God, is present in the world. So a future person will come, but the rebellion and false teaching that he will profess is already here. And the intent of, intent of such people who propagate these things is to deceive and to lead people away from the truth. Now, the second test is in verses 4 through 6. He's going to begin by reassuring his readers yet again, but the second test is in there too, and it is who's listening, who is the audience for the teaching. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So he begins, as I said, with this reassurance. He says, you... You are from God. You're not from the world. You're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, not the spirit of the Antichrist. You are from God, and you have overcome them. You have already overcome them. It's a done deal. Why? Not because of our own power and our own strength, but because of Jesus. Jesus said in John 16, 23, I say these things to you so that you might, might have peace. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world on our behalf. Years ago, I heard a wonderful sermon on this passage by Pastor Tony Evans, and he said this. He said, greater is he that is in the world than you. And I thought, whoa, that's not what it says. <laughs> And he went on and he said, greater is he who is in the world than you. Good thing you have someone inside of you. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The reason we have overcome, the reason that we are, that we are able to overcome, and the reason that we are greater is not because of us, but because of who lives inside of us the Holy Spirit of God. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Well, then he gives this second test, which is that the world is listening and eating up the false teaching. On uh, PBS years ago, there was a, a concert from Red Rocks. If you've never been to a concert at Red Rocks, put it on your bucket list. It really doesn't even matter who's playing, honestly, and don't sit close to the stage. Sit up high at night where you can see the lights of Denver below, below you and the beauty all around you. And uh, I saw on, on PBS, I've been to several concerts at Red Rocks, but this one was on PBS and it was Kenny Loggins, and I like Kenny Loggins, so I watched. And Kenny Loggins decided in the middle of his concert to preach. Now, I love his music, but his theology is whacked. And he said, if you're trying to make a decision, you know how you make a decision? Follow your heart, man. Follow your heart. Is this marriage right for me? Should I stay in this marriage? Follow your heart. Like, seriously? <laughs> follow your heart? And people eat that stuff up. Yeah, follow your heart. You know, let the universe give back. And people eat it up. 
I hope the church isn't eating it up because John says, look at who the audience is. If the audience is going, whoa, yeah, dude, that's deep. There's a problem. We can be pretty sure that's not true. I like to call it the church of Oprah. Seriously, Oprah preaches, man. She preaches. And people are just like, great. hey, maybe she'll give me a car. You know, people just eat it up. But it's all about me. It's all about self. It's all about getting what I want. It's all about, same thing with Deepak Chopra, who is just so popular right now. It's all false. Because if what is being taught does not glorify Jesus as the incarnate, risen Christ, if it does not uphold scripture as the canon, the K-A-N-O-N, the standard of truth, it is false. It doesn't matter how good it makes us feel. It doesn't matter how, how comforting it is. It's not true. And it's ultimately leading us astray. It's ultimately leading us away from Christ. But this, and the, the world eats it up, but this should not surprise us. We need to be prepared for it. We need to be able to see it for what it is and know that it's wrong. This is what Gary Burge says. He says, Christians must judge the Christological correctness of anyone's teachings. If the incarnate Christ has been theologically removed, if Christology is not at the center of what someone says, we are right to be suspicious. In addition, if the community we have always trusted, if the church as the historic custodian of truth refuses this prophecy, we should be warned. Moreover, if it finds ready reception in the world, we should flee because it may be a message that has originated with the evil spirit that dominates the world. Those are strong words, but I think they're words that the church needs to hear and needs to heed. First of all, what does it say about Jesus? And secondly, who's the audience? Who's listening? Is it the world or is it the body of Christ? Now, today, are these the only standards by which we judge truth? Or are there other truths about Jesus and about his word that need to be upheld? Yes. Absolutely. John here is writing to a specific situation. He is concerned with the heresy of the secessionists. But there is other heresy besides that heresy. This is not the only heresy. Um, and so, yeah, there are other ways of other standards by which we can know what is true, other tests. And there's other truth that is true that we need to uphold. Again, this underscores the tremendous importance of knowing God's truth so we can recognize it and recognize it when we aren't hearing it as well. Well, beginning at, at 4-7, John's going to return to the, to the uh, topic of love, and he's going to echo earlier ideas about love, uh, but he's going to give it a little different take because he's, he, he wants to tell us what inspires our love for one another. He wants us to make the connection between love, our love for each other, and God, God's love for us. Um, and in this passage, twice, is hidden what is one of the most well-known verses uh, or sayings of the Bible, God is love. Also often taken horribly out of context, but God is love. By the way, you cannot say the opposite. Love is not necessarily God, right? Uh, but God is love. 
Earlier, John said in 1.5, he said God is light. And so this is the second statement he makes about who God is, what God is. And he says God is love. Beginning uh, with verses 7 through 10, he's going to give us a portrait of this love, a beautiful portrait. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That right there is like, could we just go home now? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? Like We could spend 45 minutes just on those few verses. God's love is an inspirational love. God's love for us is not inspired by a threat. Um, it, is, it is not, God is not uh, this sort of punishing sort of, of, you know, it's not a punishing sort of threat. Like sometimes I think, you know, we see God up there going, you know, you better do right or I'm going to get you. You know, I'm going to come down. Don't make me come down there uh, and get you. And, you know, and I have this vision of driving in our car. And my mother, God bless her, and I, I love her dearly. Woman couldn't walk and chew gum. I mean, she invented ways to fall. She was sure that she had never broken a bone because of all the cheese she had eaten in her life. Because she just fell all the time. But the woman could drive a car perfectly normally, and, and find in the back an appropriate body part to slap when we were not getting along in the back of the car. How she could do that, I'm convinced that the bench seats were lower, you know, the, the tall seats are harder to get. How could, and I called it, and actually I, I've heard uh, Sinbad, the comedian, called it her rubber hand. It was like her hand, her arm all of a sudden became 10 feet long, and boom, and she got it. You know, it was like every single, ow, you two better get along back there, or you four better get along back there. That's not what God's love is for us. It's an inspiring love. It is his love for us that inspires us. It is, is God's generous love for us that compels us to love others. Our love for each other, how we treat one another, are we gracious, are we forgiving, are we generous, are we selfless with one another? Our love for one another is evidence that we have been born of God and that we know God. That term that he uses, have been born of God, that's in the past. That's a past tense, but it's a, it's a form of Greek that, um, that is, is in the past tense, but with continuing results. We have already been born of God, but we continue to bear the fruit from that birth. And then he says that you know God. That's in the present tense. And he's saying that knowing God is an ongoing, continuing, continual, growing knowledge of God. Now, John probably chose these terms because they were terms used by the secessionists, that they claimed to know God. They claimed to be born of God. Uh, and, but they did not bear the fruit of that. They did not, we learned earlier in 1 John, they did not love one another. And so he's saying they couldn't be born of God because they didn't love one another. And then he says, because God is love. What does that mean, to say that God is love? Well, it's saying more than God is loving, although that is true. And it's saying more that love is one thing that God does, although that is also true. John is saying that all of God's activity is loving. 
that love is the essence of his being. It is who he is. If we truly know this God of love, our lives and our behavior will change. And God's ultimate gift of love to us is Jesus. Now, in the NIV, it says God showed his love to us in this, in giving us Jesus. That word showed is not strong enough. The Greek word is phaneru, which literally means revealed. You know those decorating shows where they completely change your house and you go away and they call it what? The, the reveal. And it's something completely new. And sometimes it's something completely new that's fabulous and sometimes it's completely new like, you painted my fireplace! I'll never forget that one of Trading Spaces where she just couldn't get over the painted fireplace. The reveal, it's something totally new, completely different. The, the t Greek text actually says this is how God revealed his love for us. It is something completely new. Burge says, never before has God done such a thing in history. Christ is the unveiling of God's heart. He is God displayed vulnerably before the world. Of what country is this great love that God has for us? Burge calls it God's hidden passion for mankind, visibly expressed in Jesus. We know what love is because God loved us that much that he sent his son. That was the revealing of his love. Why? Why did he do it? So that we might have life. Life is found in and only in Jesus Christ, for it is found only in the forgiveness of our sins. And John makes this connection here. There was no other way, there is no other way for us to have life except through Jesus because he is our halasmos, our atoning sacrifice that forgives our sins and gives us life. So then how do we respond to this amazing love that God has revealed to us? Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love, of, love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Again, he is reassuring. We've seen over and over again, one primary purpose of this letter is to assure his readers that they are in the truth. And again, he does this. Love one another, he says, and that is the response to God's love for us, that we would love one another. It is the supernatural byproduct of God's love for us. Angry, vengeful, mean Christians, and I would put Christians in quotation marks, have no comprehension of the love God has for us. A few years ago, uh, if you know of the Westboro Baptist Church, they were picketing a funeral in Bellevue on uh, one of the busiest corners in Bellevue. And as we were coming home from church, um, we had to pass literally right by them, right? The curb was here and they were there. 
And I told my children to look away. And the reason I told my children to look away wasn't so much the signs. It was the look in the eyes of the people, even the children. I had never in my life seen such hatred. That is not of God. That cannot be from God. Because God's love is lived out in us in how we love one another. And that, whatever they think they're doing, isn't going to lead anybody to Jesus. Love leads people to Jesus because God is love. And then he says, God is invisible. What's his point in that? God is not visible, but our love for one another is. Our love for one another is tangible. And it is in offering Christ-like love to one another that we make the love of God, and in some sense, even God himself, visible. He can be seen in our love for one another. And as we love one another, we experience this amazing thing. We experience God living in us and us living in him. We know we live in him. We know he lives in us. We know we have God's spirit at work in our lives. Again, this would have been tremendous reassurance to John's readers and it is to us. And then he gives us the results of all this. He says, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect, fear, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, at the beginning, it says this is how. Actually, literally, it's by this. By this. Love is made complete among us. What does he mean? Well, we have to look back then. By what? By all that John has told us. That as God's spirit works in us, as we know God's love for us, as we exhibit that love toward others, God's love is made complete. It comes full circle. God's love for us, our love for him, and it's lived out in love for each other. And as a result of that, we have confidence We need not fear as God works in and through us, enabling us to love one another. We have confidence. We need not fear punishment from God. We are confident in his love for us and ours for him. Now, he says, because in this world we are like Jesus. What does he mean by that? Because in this world we are like Jesus. Literally, it says in the Greek, because as he is, we are also in this world. Well, by world there, he means the physical world, not what we've talked about before, just the physical world. We're in this physical world. And who is he? As he is, as Jesus is. And the explanation of what is meant here is really technical, having to do with Greek tenses and everything. But here's what John probably means. We are in this world as he was. And when we love as Christ loved in this world, we can, be, we can be confident and not be afraid before him because perfect love drives out fear. And perfect love refers to a love for God and for others which is based on his love for us. Such love produces confidence because it drives out fear of punishment. And then the last bit here. Oops. Oops. 
Yeah, okay. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have not seen cannot love God. Whom they have, or who, who, who they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this, love, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burn, burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So he says in here, again, he has his eye toward the secessionists because he's saying that that if you don't love your brothers and sisters, you can't love God. And the secessionists uh, did not act in loving ways. They they claimed to have love for knowledge of God, but they did not act in ways that were loving toward others. So John says they can't be of God. John says we can't love God and not love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ... We don't love God. And then he makes this statement, whoever loves the father loves the children. This is a specific example. John is not saying, if you love someone who is a father, you'll also love that person's children. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you love your father, you'll love your father's children, your siblings. My mother's, one of my mother's deepest desires was that my sisters and I would be best friends. We heard this from a very young age. And we most emphatically are best friends. Um, Undoubtedly, our parents' love for each other and love for us inspired this love we have for each other. Um, This is us during the sisters' reunion that I told you about. And um, this is a fairly good picture of three of us. Uh, this is what happens whenever we try to get a picture of each other together. That is always what ends up happening. Also what always ends up happening is that Carrie closes her eyes. Carrie is the one next to me. She is the oldest, and uh, she just really can't open her eyes uh, for pictures. And so Missy said, Carrie, open your eyes like this. So we tried (laughs) to show Carrie, but do you notice? Carrie still aren't open. We're trying to show her, and and Missy's response was, uh, yeah, like, that's not scary. Um, We are best friends, inspired by the love of our parents and our parents' love for us. We are best friends. And I believe my mother would have said, rightfully so, girls, if you love me, love each other. And that's what John is saying here. God is our father. That means we're sisters, ladies. And we are to love one another. If we love God, we will love one another. To love our Heavenly Father means to love his other children as well. If we love God, we will obey him. And his commands are not burdensome. Why? Because God has given us his spirit to enable us to keep his commands. And that includes his command to love each other. We can love each other. Because of God's spirit inside of us. Because of what God has done for us in Christ, we have the power to live in love and to live in a way that honors God. 
You know, as, as I thought about this call to love each other and how to apply all this, something really struck me because this love, this command to love is not fueled actually by the command itself. And it's not fueled by law or obligation. It's fueled by our realization that the God of the universe has exhausted himself exhaustively to us or has devoted himself exhaustively to us and so that we can do nothing other than love one another. So the key then is to capture or perhaps recapture our understanding of who God is and and how incredible it is that he would love us at all. I think sometimes our view of God can hamper our understanding of God's love for us and our need to love each other. I think our culture does this all the time. I think God is often pictured as some sort of angry tyrant, some cosmic killjoy with with the rubber hand that's just trying to slap. But I think often in our culture, and even as believers, we have this tendency to think of of God as some sort of soft-doting grandparent, like a cosmic Santa Claus. He's just going to give me what I want, and he's just going to love me, and it doesn't matter. And uh, and that is decidedly not who God is. And I think in John's day, they were able to have a much clearer picture of who our God is. Because they understood, I think better than we do, how awesome and mighty and majestic God is. He is great and mighty and awesome. He is the creator of the universe. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and in the words of Hebrews, he is a consuming fire. And yet, this great and awesome Lord is also interested in profound intimacy with me and with you. As Burge puts it, we need to reclaim this scandalous tension and affirm with abandon that God is holy, powerful, supreme, and at the same time, affirm his shocking intimacy with us. That's the good news. I'm going to let Gary Burge finish this out. He says, when we reclaim the awesomeness and power of God, giving him utmost respect, then his loving kindness takes on new potency. This is the tension I want my students to feel when they consider the character of God. I want them to feel fear, awe, privilege, and blessing all at the same moment. This is the good news. The lion's paw is soft yet powerful. Its growl is deep and loud, yet it utters my name with affection. Ladies, the voice of God is strong and powerful, and yet it utters your name with affection. Do not ever doubt God's love for you, because his deep and powerful and abiding love was settled on the cross. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us so amazingly, so deeply, that you yourself came and died on a cross to be our halasmus, to be our atoning sacrifice so that we might have life. Teach us anew the wonder and the power of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, ladies.